Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today's going to be part one of our coverage of the infamous Lizzie Borden case. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. I'm excited to talk to you guys about this one. This is one of my favorite cases that I seem to always come back to and I have been obsessing about since we started this podcast. And so I'm pumped to actually talk about it because it's one of those cases where I genuinely don't have an opinion on who is at fault. Yeah, it's one of the cases that when we first started the podcast, we knew that we were going to cover and we're finally getting around to it. And look forward to my coloring page for my serial killer coloring book. I'm definitely going to do my Lizzie Borden one just for this episode. Our story takes place in Fall River, Massachusetts. Sarah Morris and Andrew Borden got married on Christmas Day in 1845. They had three kids, Emma, another daughter who died during infancy, and then Lizzie Borden. Sarah ended up dying in 1863 with her cause of death recorded as uterine congestion and spinal disease. And let me tell you, I went on about an hour sidetrack looking up old medical causes of deaths and trying to figure out exactly what it all meant. The uterine congestion literally just means any collection of fluid in an organ. So it would be in her uterus, which can be caused from like pregnancy, menopause, different infections and cystic growths. I'm glad you already researched that because I was going to ask you what it was. (laughs) I did. I was like, what does that mean? And then the spinal disease could have been quite a few different things. But feel free to try to look into that. There were a lot of old terms that I think were just broad ranges covering stuff because they didn't know all the specific diseases like we know today. When Emma was 14 years old and Lizzie was five years old, Andrew remarried to 37-year-old Abby Durfee Gray Borden, which her main name was Gray and switched to boarding when she got married, obviously. They were married on June 6th, 1865. Andrew Borden was a very wealthy man. Their whole family was pretty wealthy. He was a president of Union Savings Banks. He had holdings in local textile mills and other banking houses. He was a director of several of the corporations in the area, and he also was into real estate development. Andrew Borden had about $10 million in today's money at the time. I'm a little jealous of that. Yeah, he was wealthy. But ironically, they didn't live in the wealthy area of Fall River. They lived much below their means because Andrew was known as kind of like a penny pincher. He didn't want to, he didn't like spending a lot of his money. So they lived in the, it was called the Flats. It was more of like a middle class neighborhood in the area, even though just like up the hill, there were higher class living communities where some of the other Bordens and their family lived. They had a fairly small house considering the amount of money they had, and they also didn't even have indoor plumbing. And they only had one maid or um, worker there, which for the amount of money they had, it was uncommon to only have one person living in the house doing the chores. However, a lot of people kind of look poorly on Andrew because of 
his money saving ways, I guess you could put it. They thought he should have been more active in like charity and things like that. And it is rumored that his daughters weren't happy about their living conditions considering the money they had and could have been. So in the household, there was Andrew and Abby, and then they had the maid I was talking about. Her name was Bridget, but they called her Maggie for some reason, and I honestly couldn't find why they called her Maggie, so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to call her Bridget by her name because I'm almost nervous that it was something maybe rude. They just were kind of being assholes, possibly. Emma and Lizzie, for the time period, it was very uncommon that they lived at home. So they were living at home up into their 30s, not married. They use the word spinster a lot in the articles and everything about them, just because they weren't following that regular social structure where you get married, move in with your husband and have kids and you know, that normal lifestyle that you see back then. Lizzie was very active in her community. She was active in her church. They were looked at as a good family, quotes. People didn't think lowly of her. She taught Sunday school. She was a secretary of um, a local Christian society. She was also a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she also helped her dad manage um, real estate properties. There are a couple other titles she had for different like church groups and nonprofits in the area as well. So she was very active and well known in the community. There's one other character in this story I'm going to talk about really quick and he'll come up later on as well. It was John Morse. He was the brother of Sarah Morse who had passed away, Lizzie and Emma's mom. And he left Massachusetts when he was 20 and he kind of bebopped around but settled down in Iowa and he traveled every now and then to Massachusetts to visit the family and he stay with Andrew and Abby and Lizzie and Emma. Some reports say he wasn't there that often but it wasn't weird that he came and stayed with them. Do you know why he left Massachusetts to go to Iowa? I'm not exactly sure. I think he just was kind of trying to go off on his own and do his own thing. So something kind of interesting about the Borden household is it had the cellar slash basement two floors and then like the top the third floor which is kind of just like an attic or a bedroom for Bridget in this case but it was made very oddly there's not hallways all the rooms like connect to each other so if you left like let's say Emma's room and walked to your right you would literally be instantly in Lizzie's room it was like it was set up like that not like normal houses where you walk in and there's a hall and you can lead off to the different areas it all kind of connected and it was thought of as kind of like a maze but it had two stairwells and a lot of the different doors had locks there were different entrances and then like a staircase that went up to the main part of the second floor and then a back staircase that went to Abby and Andrew's room so they had left it open most of the time and unlocked until June 24th of 1891, when someone went into their house and took some cash and jewelry. Now, it's rumored that they were pretty sure Lizzie did it. I guess she was kind of known as possibly like a little klepto and she took stuff. There was some accusations of her shoplifting as well. But because of this, Andrew decided to always keep the house locked even rooms inside the house locked. Now, of course, everyone in the family had a key, but if something were to come up missing, they know it was someone in the family. You know what I mean? Not just a stranger or intruder or something like that. In the summer months of 1892, Andrew started selling some of his properties to one Lizzie and Emma, 
and also some family of Abby as well. And it was reported that Lizzie and Emma were not happy about it because he'd sell it to them for dirt cheap, basically, just basically giving it to them. And it is rumored that it upset Emma and Lizzie. Because of these real estate exchanges, it's rumored that on July 21st of 1892, Emma and Lizzie decide to take a trip to New Bedford. It's rumored that they decided to do this because tension in their house was high because of these real estate decisions that Andrew was making. But either way, they decided to take this trip. On July 26th is when Lizzie comes back from New Bedford and Emma decided to stay there a little bit longer. Why did they decide to come back at different times? I'm not sure. I think Lizzie just was ready to maybe come home, I assume, and Emma wasn't. I, I'm not sure. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. The following days, so the end of July, early August, the family starts to get sick and they were like vomiting and stuff like that. And Abby at one point goes to the doctor and thinks she's been possibly poisoned or something. However, I'm going to tell you a little bit about their eating decisions the past couple days. (laughs) So it's often reported that the family ate a lot of mutton, which is like lamb and sheep. However, the house didn't have indoor electricity, so I'm not sure exactly how well their storage was for raw meat, but it was during the summer and it was very hot. Now, it's thought that possibly they got ill from the mutton and maybe it was bad. And the thing is, is for like three or four days, they're eating it again and again, the sit from the same like package of meat, basically. And so... It's possible, and the doctor thinks so, that they just got food poisoning from it and then kept eating it so they weren't getting better. (laughs) However, people can't help but draw a connection because it was reported that because a local clerk at a drugstore, Eli Benz, had said that she had tried to buy prusic acid, otherwise known as cyanide. She had said she was going to use it to clean a sealskin cape. Um, something like along the lines of that. But at the time, you have to have a prescription to get it. So the clerk did not sell it to her. However, he also didn't know who Lizzie was at the time. Later on, he says, it was, she said, he said he could describe her. And if he saw a picture, he'd be able to identify her, which he ended up identifying as Lizzie. So people kind of connect this and think it's suspicious circumstances. And I'll come back to that a little bit later. But I do think it's interesting that Abby's mind went to poison. I feel like when your mind directly goes to somebody's poisoning you, there's probably either some superstition that you have or some maybe underlying meanings or thought processes that she's not sharing. It was reported that Andrew was kind of, well, had issues with local business people in the community and some of his tenants that he would rent his houses out to. Well, and they were well-known people in the community and they were rich, so I could, I guess, see somebody wanting to poison them. The night of August 3rd, the same day that she reportedly, Lizzie that is, tried to buy this, she went to visit a friend, Alice Russell, and she kind of talks to Alice about how she's 
nervous about her father's enemies and she's seen some suspicious characters walking around and that she was kind of fearing for their lives in her words. On August 3rd, John arrived in Fall River to stay with the Bordens for a little bit. So the morning of August 4th, he gets up around 6 a.m. and goes downstairs and has breakfast with Andrew and Abby and then Bridget is awake and probably had cooked breakfast and she's there as well. Then sometime about 9-ish a.m., they all kind of sit around and chat in their sitting room with Abby kind of going off doing a couple household chores. At some point, she goes upstairs to attend to the guest bedroom which John was staying in. At 8.45 a.m. is when John leaves the house. He's going into town to do a couple chores and he was going to the post office, things like that. And when he left, he still had not seen Lizzie that morning, so she'd still been in her room, likely. He was planning on coming back around noon, which is when they have, well, lunch. They call it dinner. It's dinner and then supper would be what people typically call dinner today, which I just got a kick out of because that's what my family does. And I often get made fun of for calling dinner supper. I do say lunch because I went to school and that's what they call it, but I definitely say supper often. I can vouch for that. And I'm one of the people that possibly make fun of her because she's always like, let's go get a supper. And I'm like, I think you mean dinner. Just the one supper. That's just, I don't know. That's how, I guess this must be what they did back in the day. And that's where I just picked up from my family. A little bit after John left, Andrew also went into town to do, I would say, just run some errands. However, he wasn't even sure he was going to go because he was still kind of feeling sick as they all had been. Bridget in the morning was doing her usual cleaning chores, but she was also given a task of washing the windows around the house as well. And at one po- at some point, Lizzie comes downstairs and she decides to do a couple chores as well. She was going to iron some handkerchiefs um, and I think do some laundry, some things like that. So 930 is when Bridget starts getting her stuff together to wash the windows inside and outside. And At 1020, according to her, is when she gets back in the house from doing that. And she was going to start to do the inside windows in the sitting room. And at 1030, she hears a knock on the door and it was Mr. Borden. I don't know if he didn't have his key or maybe it just wasn't working. The door was like, there was reports that was possibly jammed. But Bridget has to let Mr. Borden or Andrew in to the house. And Bridget did see Lizzie. She reports five to 10 minutes after Andrew came home and Lizzie was in the sitting room talking to Mr. Borden and Bridget overheard Lizzie saying that Mrs. Borden or Abby had gotten a note that she was supposed to go see a sick friend or something along those lines. And then at 1045-ish, Mr. Borden went up to his room and then came back down fairly quickly and laid on the couch in the sitting room to take a nap and rest. So during this time, Lizzie says she had gone outside. Now she was going to go to the barn and try to find some iron or something to use for fishing lines because she was supposed to be going fishing sometime the next I'm not sure exactly when I would assume the next couple of days if that's what she, when she was searching. And she went out and stopped at her pear tree there was pear tree there and ate some pears and it was funny because whenever I go through all this it talks about all of them at different times eating pears so I assume they had this in abundance it's just kind of one of those random things that stuck out to me I was like dang this family is here for the pears (laughs) 
pears are not even that good. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not that big of a fan. I like the flavor pear, but the pears themselves. But in the Borden household, they love their mutton and they love their pears, I guess. To each their own. During this time period, Lizzie and Bridget did run into each other. And Lizzie was asking Bridget about her afternoon and if she was going out. Apparently, she's talking about some good dress sales going on in town. Which I mentioned for um, kind of a reason, which I'll come back to for sure a little bit later. A little before 11 a.m., Bridget decides to go upstairs to her room to either take a nap or maybe clean up there. It's definitely reported different ways, but she knew it was a little bit before 11 because she remembers hearing the clock strike while she was upstairs. And then from Bridget's point of view... She doesn't have anything happen until a little bit after 11, around 11, 10 to 11, 15. It varies. She says it couldn't have been more than 10 to 15 minutes when she hears Lizzie screaming from downstairs. So Bridget comes running downstairs and what she sees is Andrew's body on the couch in the sitting room and he had been hit. Um, It ends up being around 11 times in the head with a hatchet. At this point, Lizzie and Bridget both have not seen Mrs. Borden or Abby for a while. And Lizzie, from her point of view, she says that Abby had left and she didn't think she was in the house. All Bridget knows is that she has not seen her in a couple hours. Irregardless, Bridget is sent off by Lizzie to go find the doctor in town as well as one of her their neighbors and friends, Adelaide Churchill. They come back and Adelaide's kind of like, where is Abby? Do we know where she's at? We need to get her, you know, tell her about what's going on because her husband has been murdered. So Lizzie says she's pretty sure Abby's gone. However, in some reports and on some of the um, documentaries and stuff I've seen and heard, they talk about how Lizzie says she maybe heard somebody come in and go upstairs thinking it might be Abby. When I go through all the court documents and stuff, I didn't find it. So this is one of the cases that like I personally think that I know kind of a lot about and I've researched it a bunch that's not something I've ever heard is that she thought she heard somebody come upstairs so that's that's an interesting new perspective and possible fact well this case it's insane and it was insane to research it because there's so much hearsay and different accounts and you know everybody's got their own opinion and a lot of it comes from like testimonies and newspaper articles and stuff from back then. But the thing is, with especially newspaper articles, we don't know that they were telling the truth in the article. You know what I mean? And so it's one of those cases, a lot like the Jean Bonnet one, where it's something you should all look into on your own. For me, I'm hopefully giving an unbiased kind of perception of it. And I think that's only because I don't have an opinion um, on it. I'm not sure which way it's, I'll tell you the story, obviously, and you can decide for yourself. But I, in the past, have never really felt strongly towards what exactly happened either way. Oh, and I think one of the other hard things with this case is, I mean, it is a lot of opinions, but it happened over 100 years ago. I mean, what, 130 years ago, almost? Something like that. Yeah. Which is just, I mean, after so much time, it's come from word of mouth to word of mouth to word of mouth. So how accurate is anything that's stated? And that's what's lucky about this case is that we have access to read all those documents. And obviously, that'll be in our sources and um, show notes. And you can go and look and see different um, primary resources, firsthand accounts. So Adelaide goes upstairs. And what's interesting is 
before you even get to the top of the stairs, you can see through a banister and see into the guest bedroom. And the bed's in the middle, but you can see under it. And she could see Abby's body laying on the other side of the bed. This is a horrifying scene. And, like, I knew that's where you were coming. And as you're talking about her walking up the stairs, I'm just like, oh, no. Yeah. So Abby's body is found in the guest bedroom on the floor and she was deceased and she had been hit in the head somewhere between 17 and 19 times with likely a hatchet. And the thing is about Abby is that her body was cold when they discovered it, which led them to believe that she'd been murdered at least an hour to an hour and a half prior. So when she went upstairs earlier in the morning, she never came back down and the family just didn't know and I think it's it's interesting because they talk about in the house that you wouldn't be able to get through and leave without someone noticing. But it sounds like to me they were all in and out of the house so much that it would have been possible. Within 15 minutes, police are there, doctors are there, and because they had heard some yelling and screaming and seeing Bridget basically running around the neighborhood trying to get people there, neighbors had flocked. There is instantly a crowd. It was one of those things where everyone was there. And if they were to collect a lot of evidence, a lot of it could be contaminated and conclusive because of this. Police immediately kind of believed that it had to have been someone in the home because there was no evidence that there is like a break in or anything like that. And quickly, they kind of just set their eyes on Lizzie for the simple fact that Emma was out of town. John was in town and some people have theorized that maybe it was him, but he's got alibis because he was in town around people. And that leaves Lizzie and Bridget. And I don't know why they never suspected Bridget. She doesn't come up at all, at least not enough that they documented it, I guess I would say. It's definitely a theory people have, though. And I'll kind of talk about theories later because there's so many. I feel like in a case like this, though, the police should investigate every avenue and she didn't have an alibi of any sort. So why did they just all of a sudden decide not to even investigate her or talk about her when they were talking about their initial theories? I'm not sure. I think they instantly just believe that since Lizzie was the one yelling, like come downstairs and she was near the body, maybe. Um, I don't have a good answer for you other than this is what they thought and this is what they were going to look into. Now, what's odd about the crime scene is that there's really not a lot of evidence or blood evidence other than on and right around the bodies. You would think someone would be covered in blood from doing that and maybe leave some fingerprints, footprints, stuff like that. They don't have a lot of that. And another thing to know is that Lizzie and Bridget both were wearing their dresses and whatever, and they didn't have blood on them. So this time frame, at most, to put it generously, 20 minutes from... Andrew getting home and being murdered is what would have happened in between Lizzie seeing him. And I think that's why they think it's Lizzie. However, it's odd that she would be able to commit this, get rid of the weapon and clean up because she would have had to change, shower. They don't have indoor plumbing. And I can't imagine it was probably easy to change in and out of all the garments they wore back then. Probably not. Initially, police thought maybe it could be some outsider who came in, some like crazy person. In that time period, it's kind of hard to immediately expect it to be a woman, I guess, is the best way to put it. They just thought there's no way it's her. She's one tiny. It would have been hard for her to do all this and clean up, what have you. And they just didn't initially even 
suspect her, but then fairly quickly we're like, she's really the only option we have here and really was the only suspect in their minds. I hate when police decide to base a suspect on, oh, this is the only option. And I, yeah, I think it's, it was just solely because they didn't really have any evidence. They didn't have a weapon. Now, I will say they found some like hatchets around the house and one specifically that was missing the handle that looked like they said it had been cleaned and then made to look dirty like it hadn't been used. I'm not sure how you come to that conclusion, but in this time period, it is not uncommon for there to be hatchets and axes and different tools just around. They used it daily. So August 9th through the 11th, they do an inquest on Lizzie and they question her for days, basically. And it's brought up a lot of suspicion because her answers to simple questions like the timeline and stuff seem to go back and forth. It seems a little odd and they they take it as being fishy. Interestingly, though, during the inquest, Lizzie had been prescribed by her doctor some morphine to calm her down because she was apparently a mess. And that could explain her kind of fuzzy recollections, I think. Um, and not just me, they thought back then as well. I mean, you'd expect her to be a mess after having discovered her dad having been bludgeoned to death by a hatchet. I just feel like that would be a super traumatic experience. And I think you'd probably react hysterically and I would probably need more than morphine to help me get through that. Which, if any of you have ever looked into this case or watched anything about it, they have photos, given they're from back in the day, so they're not great quality, but photos of Andrew and Abby's bodies, and it's absolutely horrific. I don't know if we're going to put those ones on our social media, but they're easily accessible online. Um, One of our sources will have a link to photos from this case and they have um, autopsy photos as well and you can see the skulls of them and it's horrific it's so bad it makes my stomach hurt it's kind of like it's a similar feeling to watching that JFK assassination video where I don't even have words to describe how horrible it is so I can't imagine having witnessed that for not just Lizzie everyone who did and then those kind of sicko neighbors who were like let me get in here and check it out it reminds me a lot of I don't know if you remember me talking about Velisca where someone came in and like grabbed a piece of one of the persons that had been murdered skulls as a souvenir on August 11th at the end of the inquest Lizzie Borden is arrested and charged with the murders which she pleaded not guilty to and it got sent to trial so I'm gonna dive into the trial information and kind of go through that Stay tuned for part two of the Lizzie Borden episode coming at you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.